Hello and welcome to the EMS On Air podcast. The mission of this podcast is to keep healthcare providers safe, informed, and prepared. Today is June 19, 2020. I'm Jeff Lassers, and I'll be your host. Hey, did you hear the good news? The EMS On Air podcast is now available on American CME. This means that EMS providers can earn EMS continuing education credits by completing an entire podcast and then a brief post-course quiz and survey. Visit AmericanCME.com. Click on the courses link, then click on free courses. Scroll through the course list and look for the courses with the brand new EMS On Air podcast logo. Big shout out to Cody for making that new logo. It looks awesome. Perfect for the new transition away from COVID and into the next season coming up soon. We'll continue to release more and more EMS On Air podcast episodes on American CME, including this one, so that EMS providers can benefit from the CEs while they kick back and listen to their new favorite EMS podcast. For now, there's just a few episodes on there, and they're currently only approved for EMS providers in Michigan, but don't worry. We're on it, and yes, they'll continue to be free. Keep checking in for more updates because we have some really cool stuff cooking for the rest of the nation as well over the next months to come. In this episode, we change things up yet again. We are joined by Allison Billity, who is the Southeast Region Coordinator for the State of Michigan Bureau of EMS and Trauma Preparedness, more commonly referred to as the BETP. Most of us just say the state. Allison is one of five State of Michigan Regional EMS Coordinators, whose job it is to perform things like EMS agency and licensed vehicle inspections, initial education sponsor site visits, as well as reviewing continuing education applications. Today, Allison gives us an overview of what to expect when she or one of her colleagues comes to your agency to complete an inspection on any of your licensed or soon-to-be licensed EMS vehicles. In addition, we talk about how the state has adapted to using virtual meeting technology during the COVID pandemic to complete inspections. We are also joined by Captain John Thoit from the Ferndale Fire Department, who is also their EMS coordinator. John has been through a lot of vehicle inspections in his career, so he's here to help me ask questions because I've never been through any of these things. I check out my truck in the morning, go on calls over the next 24-hour shift, and then go home the next day. I've never really put any thought into what the state does to inspect our EMS rigs and verify them for their standards. So I got a lot out of this one, and now I have a little more appreciation for what goes into EMS vehicle licensing. Today is a nice, clean, and relatively brief overview of the state of Michigan EMS vehicle licensing inspection process. It's not the sexiest topic, but a useful discussion nonetheless. We're bound to get a lot of questions after this one from our EMS coordinator community throughout the state of Michigan, so we're already planning to have Allison back to answer questions in the interest of keeping everyone informed and ready for their next inspection. Please keep emailing your questions, comments, feedback, and episode ideas to qi at ocmca.org and visit ocmca.org slash coronavirus for the latest information, protocols, podcast episodes, and other details. Follow us on Instagram at EMS On Air and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a rating and a review. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, John and Allison. We are here to talk about vehicle inspections, the specific types of vehicles we're talking about are licensed EMS vehicles. We're here with Allison Belitti, and she's going to walk us through what the expectations are, who she is, what she does, and uh, where she does it. So, Allison, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, what you do professionally, who you do it for, and where you operate. My name is Allison Blitty. I am one of the regional EMS coordinators for the state of Michigan. I cover southeast Michigan here, and that consists of Macomb, Wayne, 
Oakland, Livingston, and St. Clair counties. I'm responsible for conducting vehicle inspections, annual agency inspections. I also do the review and site visits for all initial ed and CE sponsor programs and the approval of continuing ed credit applications. So that sounds like a lot of fun. Do you have a background in EMS specifically on the road or admin? How did you find your way to that? I am a a licensed paramedic in the state of Michigan. I'm in fact a paramedic IC. I did work in private EMS for quite a few years. I started out as an EMT. I became a paramedic. I then became a critical care paramedic for a transporting agency. Shortly after, I began segueing into education. I got my IC license. And actually, the last eight years of my career, I spent in EMS education as a program director for initial ed and continuing ed programs. Well, that's really cool because that means you actually have a background in that. So when you're going to inspect those things as well, you probably know exactly what you're looking for. We're also here with John Thoit. My good buddy, John, is a captain at the Ferndale Fire Department. He's also their EMS coordinator, and he's also the chair of the Oakland County Med Control Protocols Committee. He's here because he's gone through about a hundred of these because John's been working since the fire service was using horses to pull the engines. So now, because we're post-COVID and we're utilizing virtual, John has a plethora of experience going through this. And now he's here to help guide us on what it used to be from his perspective. And I'm here to go, I've never done one of these. And I'm an EMS provider. And how can I help my agency every day by just making sure my vehicle is taken care of based on what the state requires me to do and understand and appreciate the fact that these requirements are there for a reason and they're not written in stone. As time goes on, things improve and change. So if you have a good idea, I'm sure there's a process to do that. But before we go any further, John, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? John Toy from Ferndale Fire, the EMS coordinator. Jeff did a fantastic job introducing me. I don't think I need to give any more of my background. He's pretty much hit it. I've been doing these inspections for quite a while as a firefighter and then as a sergeant and then as EMS coordinator, working closely with Allison and many other state reps prior to her, reviewing the trucks and going through different items. Seems like we've transitioned a great deal. Last year was a really big transition in the inspection process. Years before that, there were little bumps here and there and little changes. Every year, it seems like we move forward and have changes and adjustments that need to be made in the process. Look forward to talking to Allison today to find out what adjustments and changes are in for us for this year. Well, you're talking about changes, and I'm just talking about learning how to do it. So it'll be cool to mishmash our perspectives and get it out to the people. So let's go ahead and just kick it off. Allison, what are the instances when a vehicle would be inspected? Okay, so that's a great question. There are a couple different instances when we would have vehicle inspections. The first one I'll talk about, and these are in no particular order, but the first one is during an annual agency inspection. So vehicle inspections that occur at that time are random, and there are no specific set number of vehicles that need to be completed during this annual agency inspection time. We take a lot of things into consideration. One of the things is agency size. Certainly the number of licensed vehicles is taken into consideration. If we have an agency that's large and they have several vehicles, it might be impossible for us to do each and every one of those vehicles during an annual agency inspection. So we take those things into consideration. We also consider their daily operations and how an agency has an ability to provide an on-site vehicle for us while also maintaining their service area. 
The second instance when a vehicle would be inspected occurs for all vehicle applications for upgrade vehicles, replacement vehicles, and any addition vehicles. So any new vehicle to an agency. Those three replacement, upgrade, and addition vehicles are going to get 100% of the inspections completed. So every one of them are done. And then another instance where we might do a vehicle inspection is at the time of vehicle renewal or also complaint or compliant inspections. So those happen probably less frequently, but are also an instance when we might complete a vehicle inspection. John, you got a question for Allison. Yeah, Allison, as far as it goes with new vehicles, Sometimes there's a, a little bit of pressure on the EMS coordinators to get the vehicles in service and timing, things like that, so that it flows, so that we get the new vehicle in the station, we're stocking it full of new equipment. What should we have done and ready on that new ambulance before you come? And how much in advance do we need to plan for the inspection? How, how many days leeway do you need? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I guess I'll start by walking us kind of through that application process. So the first step is going to be completing that application. That application is now completed 100% online. We no longer accept paper applications for any vehicle. So they're going to complete that application online. During the time that the application is completed, it will also be required that all supporting documents are uploaded. Those documents are uploaded with the attached application. And then also, if applicable, any fees for that vehicle application would be paid at that time. When those things are completed, the vehicle application would be considered complete. And once that application is considered complete, those three things have happened, it gets sent over to the regional coordinator to schedule that inspection. The inspection is required to happen within 15 calendar days. So regional coordinator from the time they receive it has 15 calendar days to schedule it and complete it. When that vehicle application is submitted and it's considered complete, the regional coordinator has that 15 days to schedule it. But by an agency submitting that application, they're essentially verifying that that vehicle is ready to go and that vehicle could be inspected at any time. So the application, while we have that 15 days, could be day one. And I will say that with us being virtual and doing things remotely, our turnaround time has been a bit faster, at least for me as a regional coordinator. So you submit that application and that vehicle should be ready to go. You could expect a call from me the very day that you submit it. If I have a vehicle that has gone out of service, I'm taking an ambulance out of service, replacing it with a brand new ambulance. If I take all the equipment from the one ambulance that the previous year was either inspected or approved and put it onto the new ambulance, can I use it prior to it being inspected or do I have to wait for the inspection seal of approval? So that's also a great question. So the, the three different applications that we might have, um, I kind of will break those apart and, and really go through the details on those. If the vehicle is an addition, meaning it's a new vehicle added to the agency, whether that's brand new to your agency or just one that's never been licensed before, that vehicle application considered complete, the vehicle is not allowed to be utilized until the inspection occurs. For any newly added vehicle, you cannot utilize it. The same for vehicle upgrades. So if you're upgrading a vehicle, permanently upgrading a vehicle, that vehicle also cannot be utilized until the inspection occurs. The only one that's a little unique is that replacement vehicle that you mentioned. So if I am replacing a currently licensed vehicle, as soon as your application is received by the department, it's considered complete, then the vehicle can be utilized for 15 days 
prior to the inspection. So that's where that 15 day mark comes in for both the regional coordinator to schedule and complete it. So you have 15 days to use that vehicle if it is a replacement. So Allison, what if I have a mix of ALS and BLS vehicles? What's different between my agency and another agency that has, let's say, all ALS or all BLS vehicles? If we're completing those vehicle inspections during that annual agency inspection, if the vehicles are licensed at different levels, we would most likely request to randomly inspect one or more of each level vehicle. So you might have a few of each of those licensed level vehicles inspected at that time. Fair enough. So Allison, you do a lot of these and I'm sure there's a growing list in your mind of like, oh yeah, this is one that gets missed a lot or this one gets missed a lot. But there are certain things that are absolutely required to be considered compliant. Out of those things that are necessity for compliance, what are the most common issues you run into during vehicle inspections? Probably the number one compliance issue that I have seen, and I think this is also statewide, other regional coordinators have expressed the same, is uh, compliance with the VHF HERN radio requirement. So the radio requirement is something that is required for all vehicles except MFR vehicles, and that does include our non-transport vehicles. This is part of our state MedCom plan, which is referenced in Rule 113. And that outlines the emergency channels that must be programmed on the radio and then also made available on the vehicle. So there's a lot of agencies, and particularly as it relates to that non-transport vehicle, that think is not applicable, and that is false. So the radio has to be available for all vehicles except MFR. In the requirement for the radio, Allison, does it have to be a mobile radio or can it be a portable? Um, It can be either, yeah. So we will accept mobile, certainly, but also prep radios. As long as they have the required MedCom channels programmed, it can be a prep. So is it safe to say that there is the necessity to be able to contact specific frequencies, and if you don't have that tool in your truck, bottom line, you're out of compliance? Would that be a good summary for that? Yep, exactly. Okay, so that was a little bit more serious. We talked about compliance. To lighten it up and identify the relative compliance standards for tools like 4x4s. What if I don't have enough on that truck and I got a supply closet either at the next station or this station? How big of a deal is that? Well, any violation is an item that does not satisfy the requirements on the list. So it would still be considered a violation, but there are two types of violations. So the first type of violation is what we call an on-site correctable violation, which just as its name implies, is something that an agency has the ability to fix during that actual inspection. There is a notation of that violation that's made on the report for the vehicle inspection, but there's no formal violation issued and they just simply get the, a piece of equipment or whatever item and put it on the vehicle before the end of that inspection. The second type is a violation that is not corrected during inspection, and certainly that one is a little bit more significant here. The violation is then formal and a statement is issued outlining what exactly that violation was. So you're at my agency, you're inspecting, you notice some four by fours are missing, any piece of equipment, it doesn't even matter what it is. If it's not there, it's not there. But if I can run to the supply cabinet or if I can go anywhere and fulfill that need right then and there, you just note it and we check it off and we move on. But if I can't satisfy the requirement of that compliance of whatever is missing, it's not corrected during the inspection, what am I in for? 
Yeah, so this is when it becomes that violation not corrected on site. So that's a, a first of all, the first step is that a statement of that violation is issued. It outlines the specific details on what piece of equipment was missing or what requirement was not satisfied. And then the agency has 24 hours to make those corrections. If they do not make those corrections within 24 hours, that vehicle has to be removed from service. So once that vehicle has been deemed non-compliant as a result of one of those non-correctable violations, they can only return that vehicle to service with approval from our agency licensing coordinator, who is Derek Flory. And what he'll ask is that the agency provides some type of verification that the correction was made within that 24-hour period, and then the vehicle can remain in service. If they can't provide that verification, the vehicle comes out of service at that 24-hour mark. For most cases, the vehicle will not require a reinspection, depending on the amount of violations and certainly if any of those violations were determined to be a health or safety issue that existed. Those may actually require a reinspection, but that'll be determined again by Derek Flory, the agency licensing coordinator. So he will, once he gets it and receives it, and he'll be notified of the non-compliant issue, he'll make that determination if it needs to be reinspected or not. How long does it take you to get in and out of my agency? I would say that the duration of vehicle inspection actually fluctuates. It had in the past prior to COVID and it does even now more so. Certainly, I think the most dependent factor is how well prepared that vehicle is. So the vehicle equipment lists are available on our state website. Everybody has access to those. It's web-based 24-7. And those vehicle lists should really be the guide that you will follow. It's the exact same guide that I follow when I'm doing the inspection. And if the vehicle is set up according to that list and has all the equipment available, we'll say it's a good day and a BLS vehicle can take anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes and an ALS vehicle maybe anywhere from 30 to 45. I have taken longer to complete some vehicle inspections when I'm sitting on site waiting for those on-site corrections. If an agency has a lot of on-site corrections, remember that's just going to add to the duration of your inspection. The more efficiently prepared the LSA is, probably the quicker in and out you are. Sure. I would say I would add to that too is when I come to do the inspection, whether it be on-site or virtual, having somebody who's familiar with the vehicle is also an added bonus here because, you know, oftentimes if I have somebody who's completing that inspection with me and they're not familiar with the day-to-day -day operation of that vehicle, they don't know where the equipment is, they don't know where to find items, certainly that's going to take us longer to complete it. So having that person who is familiar is also really valuable. So I've been in the industry for going on, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 years. I stopped counting. Either way, my entire career, I've been aware that state inspectors come to the station and they look at trucks. But since the COVID pandemic, the entire world is going more and more virtual. And from what I understand, talking to you prior to this, even your job is becoming virtual during the inspection process. Can you give us a little insight as to what is that like and is it working? That's factual. So during the, the time of this pandemic, all of our inspections, whether they're agency inspections, vehicle inspections, even our education program inspections, all of that is happening remotely. So we're utilizing any virtual platform that an agency might have access to. Agencies mostly utilize FaceTime or Zoom, and we're completing those inspections via that route. I will say it's been going really well so far. Certainly, there is a learning curve that we have to deal with. And then also, sometimes we run into technology issues. For the most part, our inspections are continuing on and running as smoothly as can be expected. 
I think I made mention before that one of the benefits I feel, in my opinion, is that it does allow me to be a bit more efficient with my time because I'm not out there and including that travel time from agency to agency. So the vehicle inspections, the turnaround time on that is a bit faster, but just like with any online or virtual inspection where we have that learning curve, the actual duration I found is a bit longer. So some vehicles that used to take me 30 minutes are taking about an hour. Again, it's about being ready and being available. The other thing that I have found that has helped with our virtual inspections specifically is that if we have an additional one or even sometimes two people there to complete that inspection, it's been helpful. Essentially, we have one person to hold the phone or hold the camera or the computer, and then the other folks who can gather the equipment and show the equipment to the camera. If we don't have that, we can still complete it. You know, that's certainly not a requirement, but it it definitely takes us a little bit longer. I want to talk about one thing, and you can feel free to edit this in if you want, Jeff, or not, but this is kind of one of those common issues that we see with the vehicle inspection. And it's particular to ALS vehicles. So one of the requirements on the list is that they have IM needles that are suitable for both adult and pediatric. Anything that is in their drug box in terms of contents, we will count. So that counts towards any of the equipment that we require. But there's a lot of misconception that those requirements are fulfilled with the drug box, particularly that Southeast drug box, and that's not true. So the Southeast Regional Drug Box Contents List, if you look at that, does include hypodermic needles, but those are only 18-gauge adult-sized needles, and that is not the requirement for a pediatric needle. So a lot of agencies misunderstood that, and are, we're seeing a lot that don't have that requirement. If you had the power to just add a piece of equipment to the drug box and all of them in Southeast Michigan, what would you add to it to be in compliance to take care of the issue? So that pediatric hypodermic needle, we're recognizing that as anything 25 gauge or smaller. So a 25, 27, or 29 gauge needle. Now, Right now you get adult hypodermic size needles. I would say adding that pediatric size would help alleviate some of that non-compliant issue that these agencies are facing. 25 gauge, Allison? Yeah, 25 or smaller, 25, 27, or 29. I'll accept it either way if it's a hypodermic needle, or sometimes I even tell them, go look in your stockpile anywhere you have your supplies. Even if you have sometimes a 1cc or a 3cc syringe will have that needle attached if you buy the combo. Those will be smaller in size as well. If they have that, we'll take it. But they're only required to have adult and pediatric, but the adult is covered by their box. Then the quantity is because we're scrambling last minute, I literally am taking one. If they can find one syringe with that needle on there, because I don't want these folks to be non-compliant. Also, I will tell you when I am on site doing those, I also mentioned when we get to this point that there's an education piece behind that because these providers also need to be educated and know that that needle is not in the box and where they're going to find it, which is agency specific. So some of them put it in their IV kit, some of them put it in the, you know, wherever, pediatric bags, if they have pediatric bags. So they have to know that it's not in the box. And then if they need to use that, they need to be able to know where to find it. So there's also that piece too. Okay. It's in the drug box and it's on that list, then you're good. Yep. Cool. Okay. Well, it sounds like we just solved that problem, Bonnie, because at the end of the day, especially with all the types of mutual aid that we do now, it'd be very easy to make everybody's life easier by standardizing that. And then on top of that, uh, that's one less thing for our personnel to have to worry about. And I mean the personnel involved in the inspection process, which might be admin, might be in line. Every agency is different.
That's all we have for you today, folks. But if you have any questions, you can email us at qi at ocmca.org or email Allison directly at bilitti, B-I-L-I-T-I-A, at michigan.gov. Allison will be back soon to answer follow-up questions and also give us an overview of what to expect with other types of state inspections. Thank you, Allison and John, for your time today. I can't wait to do this again with you guys. And thank you to all of you listening out there. Please continue to email your questions, comments, feedback, or ideas to qi at ocmca.org and visit ocmca.org coronavirus for the latest information, protocols, podcast episodes, and other details. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at emsonair and subscribe, leave a rating and review on whatever podcast platform you're into. Thank you for listening to the EMS On Air podcast. Stay safe and have a great day.